continuing the, the series on the life of Moses, and we're in the book of Exodus. I'm reading from a couple of passages of Scripture. One is, is Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 10 through 15, and then Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. This is God speaking. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail, not the head, the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put it back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes the deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Can you please send somebody else? Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. God calls Moses to face Pharaoh, the largest empire on the face of the earth, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, and to bring Israel, Egypt's slaves, out 
And Moses does what most of us do in times like that. Moses poops his britches. He's tried this before. He ended up watching sheep for 40 years the last time he tried what the bush was telling him to do. Immediately, Moses starts asking questions. Actually, they're very good questions. By the way, it is not insubordination for Moses to ask God questions. It's not insubordination to enter into dialogue with God. God welcomes the dialogue. God wants to talk to us. God wants to give us wisdom. Moses' first question was, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? Did you notice after this question that God never answers Moses' question? Who Moses is and his portfolios do not seem to be the key component to God's plan. Moses' strengths, Moses' experience, Moses' intelligence are not critical to God's plan to deliver Israel. This is God's plan. This will be done by God's power. This will be done in God's way. This will be done in God's time. Moses is God's mouthpiece, but he is not the one responsible for what is coming. God answers Moses' question with a simple, I will be with you. He doesn't go into psychoanalysis with Moses. He doesn't help Moses process his feelings or his angst. He just says, look, Moses, I will be with you, and that will be enough. Moses' next question then is this, who are you? And God answers, I am who I am. You notice here that God doesn't really give a name per se. In the ancient world, giving someone your name meant they could use your name for good or for evil. They could use it to bless you or curse you. It made you vulnerable. It was very special when you gave someone your name. It could be misused as well as honored. That's why the third commandment is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not misrepresent the name given to you and what it means. Protect my name, he says to Israel. And again, I, a lot of times we think that, that, that taking God's name in vain is swearing. That is not what it is meant here. It means God says, I stand for something. Don't you misrepresent me. Don't take it in vain. For God to give his name meant a lot to Israel. I am who I am probably means I am the one who cannot be compared to anybody else but myself. There's no one to compare me to. I am the one who was and is and who will be. I am the God who is present here for you now, Israel. The name Yahweh was derived from I am who I am. It took the first letters of each of the I am words and combined them. That's how we get Yahweh. And if that's confusing, God says, just tell them that I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Tell them the one who has existed from generation to generation in Israel's life is here, now to deliver and now to keep his promises. I am has showed up. Moses' next question then is this. What if they don't believe me? What if I say that your appearing to me is, is made up? And God says, grab your staff. You know, that stick that you whack sheep with. Grab it and throw it on the ground. It turns into a snake. And then back into a staff when Moses picks it up. And then God tells Moses, stick your hand in your cloak. And immediately it was covered with leprosy, the deadliest, most dreaded disease known in the ancient world. And then he pulls it out, and his hand is white with leprosy, white with decay. 
Then he puts it back in his cloak again, and a healthy hand comes back out. Then God tells Moses, if they don't believe those first two, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water will turn to blood. These signs will convince them. Moses, however, instead of being convinced, switches the conversation back to himself. Pardon me, God, Moses says, but me no talk good. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses says, I'm not eloquent, Lord. And you got to be eloquent to talk to Pharaoh. You got to be eloquent to talk to the scholars of Egypt and to the administrators of the empire and the priests of a sophisticated people. Let me say this again, Lord, me no talk good. To which the Lord responds, Who do you think invented mouths? Who do you think created tongues? I can fix your speech problem, Moses. Not a problem. To which Moses responds, could you send somebody else anyway? And it says precisely at this point, God got ticked. And he says, I'm going to make one more accommodation for you. I'll get Aaron to speak for you. You tell him what to say. I'll tell you what to say. You tell him what to say. But you will still lead my people out of Egypt, Moses. You will still be in charge of signs and wonders and staffs turning into snakes. Case closed. You ain't getting out of this. If God's choice of Moses teaches us anything, it's that God chooses unlikely people to do extraordinary things. He uses unqualified people. And here's the key part. He not only uses unqualified people, he uses unqualified people who know they're unqualified, which qualifies them in the book of God, but which often causes unqualified people to resist God's call because they feel so unqualified. Is that clear? If it's not, please forgive me because me no talk good either. God uses broken people. In fact, often, God often does the breaking or at least he gets out of the way while life or we break ourselves. Because God's strength is not made perfect in our strength. Our strength tends to get in the way, have you noticed? God is looking for humility far more than ability. He is looking for availability far more than ingenuity. He is looking for openness far more than a high IQ. God looks for people like you and me, warts and all. That's really what he has to work with. God doesn't think, you know, Moses doesn't think he's ready for God's call. Guess what? We never are. We never are. No one who ever answered God's call felt ready. Did you notice that in Scripture? Moses said, I can't talk. Gideon said, you want me to get rid of 180,000 Midianites? I'm from Manasseh, the weakest tribe of Israel. We can't do it. Abraham said, I'm too old to be a daddy. Jeremiah said, I'm too young to be a prophet. Esther said, I'm the wrong gender to confront the king of Persia. Ruth said, I'm the wrong ethnicity to be a part of Israel's plan. And on it goes. No one ever called in Scripture said, yep, I'm the person for the job. Besides that, if we wait till we think we're ready, we will never say yes to God. We'll never get off the launching pad. What do they call it now? Failure to launch? 
You can't get ready for what God is going to do through you. He has to get you ready. And only He knows when you're ready. God God knew after 40 years in the desert that Moses was ready. Moses didn't. Moses thought he was ready 40 years earlier when he whacked off an Egyptian. Only God knows when we're ready. And if he thinks you're ready, he's generally not interested in your self-assessment. Because our self-assessment usually comes up with no when we need to say yes. In almost every biblical call, you see this tug of war going on. You see doubt and questioning. And again, it's okay to doubt and to question. It's okay to wrestle with the Lord. It's okay to dialogue. It's not fatal to question God or yourself. But we all have to realize that our first instincts as a human being, when God comes to us and says, I want you to do this special thing, our first instinct is to always say no. No! And somebody pointed out to me in the first service that when it came to doing the first miracle, Jesus' first instinct, even Jesus said no. You know, his mama said, you know, this party's dying here. We need to, some help. And he said, it's not my time yet. <laughs> we, we, we say no. No, this is, this is, it's our nature. I remember when I was called to preach. I heard a voice say, I want you to preach. And my, I, I, I went, uh, no. <laughs> and I did not use good language when I said no to the Lord. Human beings like Moses, we are excuse-making machines, have you noticed? Frank McCourt, the famous Irish author in his book, Teacher Man, he was, a, he was an English teacher for three and a half years in a public school, rough public school in New York. And what he started doing was he started saving excuses he received from students. You know, the excuses to say, please excuse Billy because uh, uh, he was sick yesterday or Billy was unable to do his homework, you know, because he had, you know, something came up, a family crisis came up. He, and, and McCourt was so impressed with these excuse notes, he started saving them. He said, if their parents could read those notes, he wrote, they'd discover the kids capable of the finest American prose. Fluent, imaginative, clear, dramatic, fantastic, focused, persuasive, useful. Kids that were making Fs made A's when it came to writing excuses. He said, uh, you know, the, he, he said, one kid wrote, a man died. I, the reason I didn't have my homework today was a man died in the bathroom, bathtub upstairs. And as his body sank into the water, the water splashed out of the tub and flowed onto the floor. And it went through the floor right onto the table where my homework was. It was like reading Gone with the Wind. Another note said, we were evicted from our apartment last night. And the mean sheriff said, if my son kept yelling for his notebook, he'd have us all arrested. Yeah, that's what happened. They weren't worried about losing their furniture and their clothes and being out on the street. It was, please, please, let us save the notebook with my homework for this class in it. Finally, McCourt said, I think I need to do something about this. I'm wasting talent here. 
So he gave them a homework assignment. And the name of the homework assignment was an excuse note from Adam to God in the garden. And he said the response was remarkable. The heads went down. The pins raced across the paper. They could do this assignment with one hand tied behind their backs. He said the bell rang, and for the first time in my three and a half years of teaching, I saw high school students so immersed they had to be urged out of the room by friends hungry for lunch. He said that assignment prompted the most imaginative and expressive writing he had seen from his students. He said they came up with brilliant excuses for Adam and Eve. He said that, that you know, if, if they had been back there with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve would still be in the garden. <laughs> Moses is us. We are all excuse-making machines. You were born with that capacity. Did you know that? I'm not educated enough. I'm not eloquent enough to do what you want me to do, God. Let somebody else do it. And if enough people say that, by the way, you get the North American church. Most of us play the win-then game. You know that game? When I'm experienced enough, then I'll try this ministry. When I'm free of certain obligations, then I'll do what God wants. When I reach a certain spiritual plateau, then I'll let God use me. The problem is that the win-then game, once you get going, never ends. If you let it, it will eat up your whole life. You'll be always winning. I'll get to it when. God calls imperfect unready, broken people to do His will. And when He calls us, He never gives us a whole lot of information about what we're going to face. Because, you know what, as reluctant as we are to say no at the start, if God told us what was going to happen after we followed Him, we'd really say no. God tells Moses He's going to face resistance from Pharaoh, but He leaves out the juicy details because Moses couldn't handle the juicy details. Remember the famous line of Jack Nicholson in the movie A Few Good Men? The truth. You can't handle the truth. I'll see you at the Oscars, all right? It is a great mercy. It is a great mercy that God does not tell us the future. It is a great mercy of God that we do not see the struggles, the heartbreaks, the pain, the loss that is coming over a lifetime, especially in the important stuff. Let me tell you something. The truth about being ready is that for the important stuff, we'll never be ready. Guess what? You got thrown into this world unready. When you came out from your mama's belly, you weren't ready. But here you are. And it's true for raising kids. How many of us knew how to raise a kid before we had a kid? I didn't. And marriage. How many of us, if we could have a real good look for the next 40 or 50 years, would look and go, yeah, let's get married. You know, one of my theories, one of my theories is, is that God makes us make most of life's big decisions while we're young and dumb. He does. Because if we, because if at the end of life, after we got all the facts and could study all this and knew what we were getting into, we wouldn't get into it. 
the human race would die out. Very few people would get married and have children. Most of us would stay in a dark room in a fetal position. As Frederick Buechner wrote, God's coming to us is always unforeseen, I think. And the reason, if I had to guess, is that if He gave us anything much in the way of advance warning, more often than not, we would make ourselves scarce before He gets here. God doesn't want us to know what's coming because we can't handle what's coming. He wants us to know Him instead of what's coming. He doesn't give road maps. He gives lamps that, that light only a few feet ahead. He doesn't want us to try to change the future based on advanced knowledge. He wants us to stake our lives on His faithfulness and walk with Him in faith. Because when God moves, can I tell you a secret? It doesn't matter if we're ready. It matters if He's ready and we're following. That's the difference. God calls us to take on Egypt. And Egypt is no small task. Egypt is dangerous. Egypt is trouble. Egypt is temptation. Egypt is the world. And it takes a tremendous amount of discomfort and courage to face Egypt. And folks, we are so addicted to safety and comfort and control. And if you don't believe me, I, can, I have a little experiment for you. You can test me out tonight. Go home and hide the remote control and watch what happens. You want us, at first it'll be, where's the remote? And people will be looking. After a while, it'll be full-blown panic. It's, where's the remote? Where's the remote? If I can't find the remote, I may have to get up several times tonight and change the channel. No! We are called. We're called to make a difference somewhere, somehow. And often, it will be in everyday life as we go. You know, the, the Great Commission says, Jesus says, Therefore, go into all the world. And in the Greek, it literally means, As you are going into all the world, make disciples. As you are going. As we parent. As we work. As we play. As we love. The doors of opportunity, the Spirit will use, usually will not be planned. They will come in spontaneous conversations or nudges to do something kind to a co-worker at work or a need plopped right in front of us. It's what Paul had in mind in Galatians 6.10 when he wrote, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Whenever we have an opportunity, we are called to answer those opportunities in Jesus' name. John Ortberg in his new book says a woman at our church said to an eight-year-old boy who was all dressed up on Easter morning, she looked at him and said, you know, you look so handsome. Did you get this outfit for Easter? No, the eight-year-old boy said. He said, I got it a few weeks ago for the funeral for my daddy. It turned out, though, that this was a divine opportunity because, you see, this mother... This woman had lost her father when she was eight years old. And she got down on her knees, took him into her arms, and spoke to him as, the, as, as only one who, who had been through that. She spoke to him knowing exactly how he felt. How many open doors are all around us? 
Someone feels alone. Is that not a call? Someone waits to be inspired. You feel a nudge? Someone is aching with rejection. Can you do something? Someone is racked with guilt. Can you bring grace? Someone is an open door waiting for one of us to walk through. That is part of the call is the opportunities. And don't minimize it, please. What God does with small stuff is amazing, isn't it? Ask one kid with five loaves and two fishes what God can do with small stuff. Or ask the widow who gave two mites, who's inspired generosity for 2,000 years, what God can do with small stuff. Or ask a stuttering fugitive named Moses, who in the end was God's spokesperson. Ask him what God can do with small stuff. God takes broken, imperfect people and changes the world through the smallest acts of obedience as well as great acts of courage. Let me ask you today, what's your call? Where do your gifts and the world's needs meet? That's Frederick Buechner's definition of a joyful life is where the world's needs and your gifts meet. What is your deepest dream that won't go away? Have you got one of those? What is the burden that keeps aching in your heart? Done anything about it? You know, Linda just got back. Pastor Linda just got back from Africa. And while she was in Africa, she was touring around and she saw a dilapidated medical clinic that was closed down for lack of funding and lack of repairs. And while she was there, she started talking to, to a person. Uh, I don't know his name. I will call him Billy Bob. And, uh, no, nah, I'm not going to call him that. The, oh, she was talking to the bishop. Bishop Billy Bob. And... Uh, <laughs> No, she was talking to him, and she said, what would it cost, you know, would you be open to starting this clinic back up? And he said, well, if we had the money, how much money would it take? 30, well, she did some more investigation, thousand dollars to reopen a medical clinic in Africa. When Linda came back, you know, they were still debating, and I remember she, she, she was trading emails or something electronic, back and forth. And, uh, and they were checking it out and all this. And, and finally, they, I remember Linda got the word, why don't you raise the money and we'll, we'll, we'll start the clinic again. And Linda came alive. She has been so happy. She has been so full of energy. She's going to be calling you people and hitting you up. She got to raise $37,000 to start a medical clinic in Africa. The last time I saw her this happy was when I told her I was retiring. It's, uh, for some reason, she was dancing then, but. <laughs> Let me ask you, where is God growing you? Where is your call? What do you get passionate about? What are you surprisingly effective at? What doors are opening right in front of you? Follow the breadcrumbs. Listen to the Spirit in your heart. Ask God questions. Dialogue with Yahweh and His Son. Because you're already gifted to do what God wants you to do. That's not the question. The question for most of us is, 
Are we weak enough, humble enough, open enough, available enough, dependent enough on God for God to do what He wants to do through us? One of my, uh, a pastor, at one point he was in continuing education at a seminary. And he took what all pastors dread taking in seminary. I am, I am a firsthand witness to this. Homiletics class. Preaching class. And they did it the way I had to do it at Eastern Mennonite, which is, in this class, there were 26 preachers. And for five minutes, they had to give a sermonette. For five minutes, in front of all other 25 watching them and in front of the professors, and they were going to be graded on it. I remember when I went through that, I, it was the least favorite preaching experience I have ever experienced. Because you see, preachers, this will shock you, but sometimes we can be competitive with each other. I'm not competitive about a lot of things, but there's one thing I'm competitive about. I want to preach better than you. I don't care how good you are, I just want to preach a little better. That is an honest confession of most preachers. And he said, this guy said, we were all nervous wanting to impress one another with wanting to be better than one another. He said, at least I was. And he said, the morning came and we got together and the, the instructor assigned it our, our places in the batting order. He said, out of the 26 preachers, I was 17th. We began. He said, I listened to my peers. They intimidated me. They were good. When my turn came, my confidence was bruised, but I did all right. Everyone said so. By the way, this is a great preacher, a great preacher. And then came Steve. Steve, this preacher said, I think was number 22 in the batting order. And unlike most of us, he was not a seasoned speaker. He was not a full-time pastor. He was bivocational. Preaching wasn't his day job. And he really, up to that point, didn't even have a seminary education. And a lot of these preachers did. And he walked up front. And as he walked up front to preach, he said he was so intimidated and scared. He said we could see him shaking, walking up to the pulpit. And when he turned around, his eyes were wide with fear. And he looked out. To the other preachers, and his first words of his sermon were, I'm scared. It's okay, the rest of the preachers said. It's just us. You know, the ones that want to crush you like a grape, they didn't say. And Steve told the story from Luke's gospel about the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and who bankrupt from medical bills, ready to give up, threaded her way through a teeming crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She managed that, and then she melted away into the crowd. But Jesus knew virtue had gone out of him. He stopped. And then he found her and drew her out. That one touch, Steve said, deliberate, desperate, faith-filled, did what years of doctor's treatments and platitudes fell to do. She was healed. Steve told the story with no embellishments, no dramatic flair. He almost could have read it. And while he talked, his voice trembled. And when he finished, this pastor said we were all silent because every one of us realized in that five minutes something holy had taken place. 
The Spirit had transported us back in time. We were, at the very least, caught up in the wonder of that long-ago moment. That fearful, hopeful woman touching Jesus and walking away with health brimming in every part of her. Twelve years of bleeding, all the mess, all the cost, all the stench, all the pain of it. Gone in an instant. We were there. He says we were supposed to have critiqued one another at that point. But no one wanted to critique Steve. We sat in stone stillness. In the room's quietness, we heard weeping. We turned and saw that it was Wendy, the administrator. She had been asked, you know, by the professor to tape our sermonettes. And now we saw her catching tears in her hands. The instructor asked if she was okay. Yes, she said. Yes. She calmed herself. And then she told us what happened. For four months, she said, I have been in constant excruciating pain. I have been to see my doctor several times. She sent me to see specialists. They ordered test after test. No one could tell me what's wrong. My husband and I have been frustrated and afraid. We told no one. I thought I'd have to live the rest of my life with this kind of pain. And then Wendy started to weep again. But when Steve started to speak, Wendy said, Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he healed me. Just like he healed that woman 2,000 years ago when she touched the hem of his garment. And the pain left me immediately. Right there in a seminary class on preaching in the middle of a cutthroat competition by preachers during a sermon by one of the preachers who was too intimidated even to enter the contest. We applauded, he said. We congratulated Wendy. We congratulated Steve. We thanked God in a preaching class. But this pastor said, I also sat there ashamed. I'd been so anxious to impress everyone else, to beat everyone else in preaching. There had been no place left in my heart for Jesus while I was preaching. He said it took Steve in weakness, in fear and trembling for God to come in power that day. He said that night I couldn't sleep. Something kept me awake and it was a prayer inside of me, he said. And the prayer was this, I want what Steve's got. I don't want more eloquence. I don't want more education. I want more of you, God. I want more of you. And the Lord said back to him, I want that for you too. I'm here to tell you what my, this pastor learned that day in homiletics class. I'm here to tell you what Moses learned 3,200 years ago. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. His life flows best when we are broken and have no confidence in our flesh, in our strength, but depend entirely on His when God wants to change the world, He uses Moses, not Pharaoh. He uses a bunch of slaves, not a world empire. He uses the weak, not the strong. He uses people like you and me. In the end, our biggest regrets, by the way, will not be the mistakes we made. You know, they've done studies on regret. And there's short-term regret and long-term regret. 
And what they've discovered is that short-term regret tends to be over what we've done. The sins, the cruel things we said, the mess-ups. Short-term, people feel worse about what they did that they shouldn't have done. Long-term, you know what people regret? They regret what they didn't do. The opportunities missed to say a loving, kind word. They regret that they could have made a difference and they didn't make a difference. They regret that they could have been kind and they walked on by the bloody body laying on the Jericho Road. They regret that their life meant nothing. In the end, when we look back on our lives, what we will regret more will not be the things we blew it will be the things we walked away from that it could have changed us and changed those around us. Listen to the call of God. The big ones, but especially the little ones. Because if you miss God's call in your life as a Christian, you miss life. As one writer put it, I might mess up, but if I don't go, if I don't risk, I don't try, if I don't say yes, I will never do something wonderful for God. If I say yes, I might fail. But if I don't, I'll never get to the promised land. Remember Abraham? You can't get to the promised land if you stay in Ur. You can go and leave Ur of the Chaldees. And you'll make all kinds of mistakes getting to the promised land. But you'll get to the promised land. But you never get to the promised land if you just say no. You'll never be free or a blessing to the world. And we will live with regrets over what could have been, what might have been. And more importantly, what God could have done through me if fear hadn't gotten in the way. We are called to an outrageous, crazy, wonderful life with God. We're called to change the world. Are you living it? Or is your response... Would you please get somebody else? Would you please get somebody else? Go get Aaron. Go get Aaron. Today I'd like to usher the servers to come forward as we prepare. And we're celebrating communion. We're celebrating God coming for us, risking everything for us, dying for us. That's what the communion stands for. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say... Get somebody else. Because <laughs> there was nobody else. There was nobody else that could do it. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say no. And now he asks us to join him in saying yes to the Father. And joining him in his great mission to save this world. Almost started reading on how to get baptized, but we're here for the Lord's Supper. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. 
Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and all cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have communion in the seats today. We ask you to hold the cup and the bread till we all can partake together. If you are allergic to gluten, in little plastic bags on the plates, there is gluten-free bread. You may partake of that. You do not have to be a member of this church of the brethren in Christ. We just ask that you love the Lord. And now let us worship the Lord in his communion. Can we take a moment to just focus in preparation on the Christ in our midst and what he has done for all of us? Make us grateful, Jesus. Forgive us. Forgive us for too many no's in our life. Amen. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for saying, I will do whatever the Father wants. Thank you for coming, living, dying, rising. Thank you for being here now. Amen.